The Network Live. News, insights, and stories right here on KNEL 95.3 FM and KNELradio.com every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. Don't miss this opportunity to hear world news, insights, and stories from guests around the world. The Network Live is your pathway to connecting people and ministries. Good morning and welcome to the Network Live. Happy New Year to you all. I hope you enjoy this message today from Pastor Bill Johnson. He's going to be giving us a great word to bring in 2022. Here's Pastor Bill Johnson. Happy New Year. In Matthew 13 is my favorite example of this. It's where we have the parable of the seed and the sower. We have the different kinds of soil represented in that parable. The two things that I want to draw your attention to is, first of all, it says the birds of the air came to steal the seed. So number one, the enemy always wants to steal whatever word, seed is word, he wants to steal whatever word was spoken over our lives. Now, I, I understand we have the scripture, we have all of the scripture, but the Holy Spirit breathes on this and will highlight certain things to you. Sometimes we'll receive prophetic words. If they're consistent with scripture, pay attention to them. But those prophetic words, the enemy will always try to come and to steal the seed. Why? Because the power is in the seed. Power's not in the soil. The soil's necessary, but the power is in the seed. The power for the manifestation of who Jesus is in the earth is in the power of the seed. So number one is that the, that the enemy, the birds of the air, work to steal seed. So any seed that is left in the open, untended. Sometimes God speaks a word and we ignore. Or we'll take care of it later. Receiving the word deeply into our heart is what ensures that word will take root and have impact. So, so number one, the enemy works to steal seed. Secondly, if he can't steal it, he will try to plant his seed next to, uh, to, to God's seed. So we have the weeds. Right? I know this is really complicated. I'm, I'm in the gardening, which is way outside of my uh, area of expertise. I need my wife here. All right. But then finally, I said there's two things. Those are the main two things. But the outcome is that when the enemy plants contrary word or seed, it's to strangle the life out of what God said. Right. Now, let's be honest. God's word has how much power? All, all, power. all power. The devil's word has how much power? No. Zero authority, except what I give it. The moment I embrace or consider or meditate on the enemy's seed, his word, his thought, his idea, in that moment, I lend it my authority. So it only has impact in me to the measure I make agreement, right? When you believe a lie, you empower the liar. Believing a lie empowers the liar. Why is this, why is this critical? Because the Lord is working on raising up a family, sons and daughters of God, that know how to steward what he says. 
So the word of the Lord is all powerful. Yes? yes. He spoke the worlds into being. Yes. All powerful. The enemy's word is just a contrary idea that has no power except what I give it. If I listen to it, then I've empowered it. The Bible says that tribulation and persecution comes because of the word. Every time you and I hear something that the Lord is declaring over our life, it may be that uh, you're just in, you're in your daily devotion when you're reading through whatever. Let's just say Ephesians chapter four, and he begins to speak to you about the strength of grace that you impart to people around you. And you're reading that, and it just highlights to you, and you have that sense of purpose and identity, uh, identity, a sense of responsibility, and he highlights that to you. The enemy will always work to undermine that word so that it doesn't take deep root in us. And he does that by getting us to question what God has said. Perhaps the best example of this uh, for me is, let's say that uh, the Lord uh, gives a promise to one of you that you are going to see, um, you're going to see blind eyes open. And it is going to become the norm for you to see blind eyes open. And then you have a friend with blind eyes and you pray and they don't open. So what do you have now? You have a promise and you have a conflict. What are you going to give your heart to? It's easy to say the promise. But when you fasted and you've prayed and the blind eyes are still blind, what are you going to give your heart to? Because the more we use this, well, they're just not opening. I must not have heard from the Lord. What have I just done? I've just empowered the inferior. Right? I've just empowered the inferior seed. Why does he allow that? Tribulation, persecution to come because of the word. Because he's a father who gives reward. And if there's no option, there can't be a reward. He can freely give gifts, but rewards are based on performance. Based on obedience is a better word. Based on obedience. Does that make any sense at all? All right. To five of you, that's, that's all I needed. It's all right. Sorry. All right. So here I want to... I want to take you into um, 1 Samuel chapter 30. And this is uh, David. David um, has got a bunch of guys with him. They were the rejects of society. They are being mentored and discipled out of stupidity into responsibility. They eventually become what's called the mighty men of David. And they were just scary. I, I don't think... I don't think anybody has the nerve to make a movie about the mighty men because it would be too gruesome, um, Old Testament standards, uh, of course. But uh, the mighty men of David actually became this incredible force in the earth on David's behalf. But this is before he's king. He's been anointed king, but he's not king yet. Saul is still in place. And um, David goes and he's been rejected by Saul's household. He's the king. He's been rejected by Israel. Uh, the the people of God have rejected him. Um, he's been, uh, he now is living among the Philistines and he uh, does this crazy thing. He's got all these warriors that he's discipling and he takes them out at night and they go to war with the enemies of Israel. Now he's living with the Philistines. The Philistines think he's going out to war 
to fight their enemies. But in actuality, he's fighting the enemies of Israel. So they come back in the morning, you know, after fighting all night or whatever they do. I don't know. They kill and plunder and all that glorious stuff. <clears throat> I watched a movie yesterday that was slower than Miss Daisy, driving Miss Daisy. <laughs> It almost went backwards. <laughs> Random. And, and, and I don't even remember the title. God's healed my memories. And if, and if you love Driving Miss Daisy, bless you, because it was a highly regarded movie, and I don't mean to speak evil against any movie. All right. Where was I before I stepped into that hole? So David and his men would go out and they would plunder the enemies of Israel. Then they would come back and the Philistine leaders thought they were doing it for them. So one day they want to go out to fight against Israel. David and his guys go along and, and the leaders of the Philistines say, this isn't good because he'll turn on us in the middle of the war and then all the Jews will go, David's our king, David's our king. So there's this big conflict that goes on. So David gets rejected by the Philistines. So he's rejected by Saul, rejected by uh, the Israelites. He's rejected by um, the Philistines. And you've had a bad day when the devil rejects you. So he rejects them. They go back to their own town, Ziklag. And when they come to the outskirts of town, they see that there's a fire. And so let's pick it up in verse one. We've got several verses to read. So I hope that you have your Bibles open to 1 Samuel 30. It happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south of Ziklag, attacked Ziklag, burned it with fire. And they had taken captive the women and those who were there from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but they carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city. There it was, burned with fire. Their wives, their sons, their daughters had been taken captive. And then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept until they had no more power or strength to weep. And David's two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Now David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. That's the hinge of the chapter. Everything changes from this point on. David send, uh, said to Abathar, the priest, Ahimelech's son, please bring the ephod here to me. Abathar brought the ephod to David. David inquired of the Lord saying, shall I pursue this troop? Shall I overtake them? And he answered, pursue, for you shall surely overtake them without fail and recover all. That last phrase you will recover all is the reason I want to talk to you this morning. I have this uh, growing sense that we are given, we are being given an opportunity to co-labor with the Lord and to see an actual recovery of everything lost. That coming into this new year is supposed to be a year of recovery. Now, all, some of you have had a tremendous last couple of years. Some have had real hellish and some of you just have coasted along and aren't even certain anything's happened. So we have every, everything and everything in between. 
But regardless, every one of us live in a world where there's conflict. Every one of us have uh, expectations that we've had fulfilled, expectations that there's been great disappointment in. And I have this, I'm going to call it a prophetic sense, a prophetic sense that the Lord wants to invite us in to a moment where we engage with him over a promise. There are times in our lives where the Lord simply speaks to us and he says, he says, uh, as, he, as he spoke uh, several times in the Old Testament, uh, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. And there are moments where you don't do anything. You literally, you're going to mess it up if you do anything. So just be still and watch. And that's kind of what he tells us. He says, just stand by and watch because I'm going to do something for you on your behalf. And yet there are other times where that's not at all what happens. Here, David inquires of the Lord. When did he inquire of the Lord? It was after he strengthened himself. I, I know that God brings us promises when we're at our lowest point. I get that. But sometimes the greatest exploits come from a promise we received after we strengthened ourselves. I, I, I'm not sure exactly how to explain this. I hope that there's a, a, a grace available to see this. That there's, there's, it's like um, the Lord is a good steward and he gives some of his grandest seed, his greatest promise to those who have stewarded their hearts well. And he imparts to them a promise, you will recover all. When did he give that to David? It was only after he strengthened himself. There are, I'm glad that the Lord rescues us. I'm glad that, you know, that there's a good percentage of the times in our life where we didn't do anything. He just showed up and turned it around for us. I'm thankful for those. Those teach us about his heart as a father, his compassion, his, his greatness, his grace, his kindness. All those things are revealed in those moments. But he's also a father who wants sons and daughters to go into maturity, to remanifest what Jesus is like. And that isn't seen in rescue. It's seen in used authority and the demonstration of what God has imparted us to give. And we've got one of these moments here where it says David strengthened himself in the Lord. Is God, it doesn't tell us what he did. I think if you read through the Psalms, you'll find a lot of what he did. I, I, have, uh, I, I remember as a, uh, years ago as a young pastor, I'm still a very young pastor, but I was a lot younger pastor back then. Yeah, yeah, sh- shut up in the front row. Yeah. I, I remember just having just real, real battles over, over what I was thinking and my, my, uh, my hunger for the Lord was strong, but I was so disappointed. And what I ached for and what I saw were worlds apart. And, and that, that tension really, really brought about seasons in my own heart, in my own mind, where I became just very self-critical. And when you become self-critical, you become dangerous because you will love your neighbors, you love yourself. Be careful around self-critical people because you may be next. That's a good word right there. 
And I remember doing that. And I remember just feeling that internal struggle. And I, I would fight my way to the top again where I could minister life on Sunday, encourage people, love people. But I, I would just get so discouraged and self-critical. And I remember it felt like I was being forced, but in a kind way, being forced into learning tools that he had placed in my life that I knew little to nothing about. Number one, I found that abandonment in worship changed me. I don't think there's any other process that we experience in our life where we experience more personal transformation than when we come into his glory, that glorious presence. It is so transformative that we, we, we come in one way, we leave another. I, I don't mean just singing songs, and I, I believe in that. And, and I, I, would, I would, you know, go into the church sanctuary in Weaverville, and I'd turn the music up, and I would worship by myself, or I'd sit at the piano and play, and would, would just enter into real, real sacrifice, real offering. It wasn't, it wasn't done out of convenience. It was done out of necessity. And it wasn't warfare in a sense. It wasn't devil-focused. Worship should never be devil-focused. I don't care if it destroys the powers of darkness. It still is not the focus. It's, it's you know, let him destroy the powers of darkness. You just delight in him. And that's, that's really, really the, the engagement there. And so I remember coming and I would, I would sing. I, would, I, I generally had to rejoice before I saw breakthrough. Because it's amazing how easy it is to hang your head and to sing of his worth and to leave unchanged. Because it doesn't take faith to sing of his worth. It takes faith to rejoice though. Because you actually have to believe you're accepted. And I remember doing that. And I, those, that, that thing would break and I'd come into a place of greater strength again. And, and then I, I would find certain portions of scripture. You know, when you walk with Jesus, one of the, one of the cool things is that you have... You have history with God in his word. And I have seasons. I can take you to physical locations. I can take you to a place in Weaverville where I walked and I wept. And I remember exactly where the Lord spoke to me out of his word. And he ministered to me there. And it's, it's, it's like that verse is my personal real estate. I own that lot. I'll loan it to you. You can read it. You can celebrate it. But it is mine. And there are certain places like that. There are certain places, I think hopefully all of us have those kinds of places where we just simply feel at home. And so in the times of praise and thanksgiving, uh, something about a grateful heart changes things. It changes the focus, the priority. And, uh, and giving those offerings to the Lord have been huge for me. And it brings strength to me. Another thing has been getting into his word specifically. And I, I will go to, I'll go, for example, for me, I'll go to Joshua chapter one and I'll read verses one through nine over and over again. I'll go to Psalms 25 because I had a real tough situation some years ago and the Lord ministered to me out of the 25th Psalm. And it was life to me. He just, I would just sit there and just tears in my eyes, just reading over and over it again as he would just heal my soul. And so I have history there with God. And it may mean, you know, nothing but another portion of scripture and forgive me for making light of that, but it, it may not be as personal for you, but I have, I have time there. I have blood, sweat, and tears in a sense over that portion of scripture. And so I'll go back there. 
Uh, sometimes I'll, I'll go to other, uh, some of the prophets. If, if I know, for example, I was reading in, in Zechariah chapter 9 this morning where the Lord spoke and he says, and I will restore double to you. And I'll take a chapter like that and I'll just wade into that. I'm not studying, I'm praying. I'm engaging with the author of the word. And I read those things and he replenishes my soul. I'm doing what I know to do to strengthen myself, taking responsibility. See, every one of us, especially anybody who's known Jesus for over a year, you've got to take responsibility for your own strength. Stop waiting for somebody else to make you strong. They will add to your strength, but it's like supplements to a meal. It's not the meal. Take the vitamin C, but drink orange juice too. You know, it's, it's not the meal. It's, the, it's supplements that people provide for us. And so I have found um, that these different places that I have history uh, with God in this book. Another thing that I do in the reading of scripture, and this is what I do uh, very commonly, is I'll just start in a psalm because that's a place of healing for me. In the book of Psalms, there's every emotion you can imagine. And so I read until I hear my voice. I read until I can find on the page of what I'm reading something I can relate to, something I can identify with. And I, I, re, I may read 20 Psalms. I may sit in one sitting and just read 20, 25 Psalms. I'll just keep reading. But once I find my voice, something begins to activate inside of me. What is it? I believe it's a faith thing. I don't stop and analyze it, but something's coming alive in me where I, I am, I'm becoming restored in my confidence in what God has said over my life. Restored in my confidence in what God has said over my family or over this city or over this, this ministry. Whatever it might be, there's a restoration of, of hope of promise. There's a refined focus. Yes, this is what the Lord said. I've forgotten that. I allowed all these inferior things to steal my strength and uh, I'm not doing that now. I'm refocusing. And something happens in my soul where there, there's a, it's, it's almost like you've been sitting down waiting for something to happen and you realize, oh, I think I'll just get up. You know, <laughs> that might be what he said when he said, arise, shine. Your light has come. It's already happened. Get up and begin to implement what he's already put in our arsenal. And that is this chapter for me. As David strengthened himself in the Lord, but then he went to the Lord. This is probably my, my biggest uh, mistake that I make in, uh, in life is at this point. I know how to strengthen myself pretty good. I know how to radically obey and take risk. The biggest mistake I make is that I assume he wants me to recover all and I didn't ask him, do I pursue recover all? I don't know if that makes, if I made that clear or not. Uh, sometimes I will assume that I know the will of God because it's biblical but it's not necessarily what he wants me to wants me to give myself to in that moment. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, if, if I can use an example, I maybe have worn out, but um, <clears throat> where Paul responds to this great commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And so he says, I'm going to Asia. And God says, no. Yeah, but it's in the book. Can you imagine arguing with God about what's biblical and not biblical? He's, you know, 
I'm going to Asia. And the Lord says, no. And finally, over time, he has a dream. Man from Mesopotamia calls and, or Macedonia and wants him to come uh, to Macedonia. The point being, sometimes I know too much about the potential will of God and it drowns out my sensitivity to the particular will of God. And so in this moment, instead of assuming he's to recover all, he says, should I pursue them? And if I pursue them, will I overtake them? That's a good question. There's one place in the Bible where the Lord said to pursue and Israel was defeated. I've been wanting to teach on that one because it's so confusing. I love that. I, I love the bewildering stories. It's true. They said, should we pursue the enemy? God says, go after it. They do and they lose. So they come back the next day and they said, God, do we pursue? And he says, yes, pursue. And they get defeated again. And never explains why. Sometimes we just have to be reduced to our real point of strength. And the third time, they said, do we pursue and will we overtake? And he says, yes, pursue and you will overtake. So here's that moment for David. And the Lord speaks and he said, you will recover all. I have a sense, I believe that this promise is for everybody in the room. I think, uh, you know, for the believer, um, every year is the year of Jubilee. You know, so it, we're always in a moment where the Lord is desiring to recover lost things. I, I believe that wholeheartedly. But there are moments where he's breathing on a theme. And when he does, there seems to be, at least in my estimation, such an exponential increase of power in that moment. For example, the Lord can say, this is the day of the harvest of souls. Well, so was yesterday, right? But when he says it, suddenly a message that would have got two people saved now gets 50 people saved. Does that make sense? It's like when he says it, there's this accelerated activity of God involved in that moment. And while it was true yesterday, it is even more true today. And that's my personal sense about this verse. Pursue and you will recover all. My sense is, is that he's looking for a church family, believers that will stand confidently in the middle of a very unusual season and say, Father, do we pursue? And if we do, will we recover all? And then he says, pursue, for you shall recover all. This story unfolds and they do recover all. Uh, it's an extraordinary thing that none of the uh, children, the wives, none of them were killed. All the possessions were saved. They recovered everything for the glory of God. This passage that I, I, I was actually sent, a friend of mine sent it to me this week, kind of just a personal promise for me and for our family, out of Zechariah chapter 9, I think it's verse 12, where the Lord says, and I will restore double to you what was taken, what was stolen. We see this in Job's life that he lost everything. Then the Lord, after he prayed for his friends that were critics of him, after he prayed for his critics, it says the Lord restored 
twofold. The amazing thing about the restoration of the Lord is that he restores to better than before. He restores to a place better than before. He doesn't restore to the same place. He, um, when he restores, uh, they, they tell me that when a, a bone is broken and it gets healed, that place of the break is actually stronger than the rest of the bone. He, he wrote it into nature that we would know that our creator, our father restores, but he restores to a place of even greater strength. It's the beauty of deep repentance because the person in this room who would have made the biggest mess of their life, when God forgives, heals, and restores, that place of greatest weakness becomes the place of great strength, of exemplary strength, strength illustrated through the repentance of that one. Thank you so much for being with us today. If you would like to hear a rebroadcast of the Network Live, visit knelradio.com or find our podcast on iTunes and podbean.com. To follow more news, insights, and stories, follow the Network Live on Facebook. If you would like more information about being a guest on the Network Live, contact us at thenetworklive.org. The Network Live will be back next week at 10 a.m. right here on KNEO Radio 95.3 FM and KNEOradio.com. I'm Debbie Rule. Thank you for listening today.